Hi, my friends who listen to Future Primitive. Today, I have the pleasure of being with Mike J, who has recently written a book called Mescaline, A Global History of the First Psychedelic. Mike J has written extensively on scientific and medical history. His books on the history of drugs include High Society, Mind-Altering Drugs in History and Culture, published by Thames and Hudson, and The Atmosphere of Heaven, The Unnatural Experiments of Dr. Beddoes and His Sons of Genius. Well, later, I want to know what all that's about. But right now, welcome, Jay. Happy to be with you. Oh, thanks. It's a real pleasure to be here, Joanna. Good. Now, um, so uh, talk to us about the path that led you to this, um, to this very interesting history book. Well, I've been writing about the... Uh, history of uh, psychoactive drugs for some time, many years probably now, and uh, I was always interested in following these stories back to their beginnings, who were the first people to uh, explore these substances, where did they come from, how did they make their way into our culture, and in the case of psychedelics, all roads lead back to mescaline, uh, because... um, It was um, in the 19th century, in the 1890s, that mescaline was first isolated from the peyote cactus. So we've had over 100 years here in the West of exploring uh, mescaline through art, through science, through spiritual experience, through medicine. And before that, there's a much longer history of the cacti which contain mescaline the San Pedro cactus from the Andes and the peyote from Mexico and that little bit of Texas. And that gives us another story that goes back into prehistory. And so in telling this story, we it's a story that almost, um, almost starts where the story of psychedelics normally starts. When people tell the history of psychedelics, people say... Well, Aldous Huxley took his mescaline in 1953 and he wrote The Doors of Perception and after that the word psychedelic was developed and that's the beginning of the story. But with mescaline, that's almost the end of the story. There's a long like, prehistory of psychedelics and that was what I wanted to explore. Well, it's definitely where the story started for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Washington, D.C., 1969 it was almost like I came to America to do the revolution and 
to experiment with LSD. And shortly after I'd landed here, what was offered to me was an envelope full of blue powder. And uh, that was my first psychedelic journey. I mean, we, we had no idea how much to take. Mm-hmm. Um, so we followed our intuition. And, uh, and it absolutely changed my life. Mm. And, um, I mean, it, it would be like what you quote, quote from Aldous Huxley. It revealed to me the miracle moment by moment of naked existence. When I read that this morning in your book, that was so beautiful. And this miracle of native existence has been unfolding ever since in his mm. in in its horror and its absolute beauty mm-hmm. so let's go back historically take us through the road well i guess uh, the first real work of creative expression related to mescaline. We can find it uh, in a temple site in the Peruvian Andes, a site called Chavin. And about uh, 3,000 years ago on the uh, temple walls was carved a figure, part human but also part jaguar, holding a San Pedro cactus. And um, this is an ancient part of the story that actually even Aldous Huxley didn't know because at that time uh, people knew all about the peyote cactus but uh, it was not yet realised that the San Pedro cactus contained mescaline. It was not really recognised that in uh, uh, pre-Columbian art, long before the Incas, you know, there are representations of the San Pedro cactus in all kinds of traditions in the Andes as uh, pottery and in textiles. And it was actually not really understood then by many people that there were still curanderos, traditional healers on the coast of Peru and in Bolivia, still working with, with the cactus, that it was a living tradition. And now, of course, today we can find... Uh, our San Pedro shamans anywhere in the world. We can find them in Ibiza, we can find them in Goa, we can find them here in California for sure. So this is something that's become a global phenomenon just in the last few years, but its roots go deep, deep into prehistory. How much do you think it's the uh, the longevity and the... Um the sacro-spiritual tradition of this that has produced the fact that people seem to be recovering from bad addictive habits through these medicines. I think um, it's... I'm very struck by the difference between our Western approaches and the indigenous approaches. Our Western idea of um, medicine and healing and recovery is very much focused on the individual and on the brain chemistry and this, you know, expert medical professional talking to a single patient. When you step into the indigenous world, it's much more about the collective. Yes, the 
The cactus may contain mescaline, but it's not only the drug in the cactus, it's also the ritual, it's also the people around you. And, um, you know, addiction is, you know, in that culture is often seen not as a problem of the individual, but of the group. So if you look at when the Plains peyote religion uh, took off in the 19th century, the sort of Southern Plains tribes, which is a story I follow very closely in this book, then, of course, one of the things that is tearing the tribes apart in their forced captivity on the reservations is alcoholism. And peyote emerges as something that is specifically uh, deals with that, that if you join the Native American church, that's a group of people who don't use alcohol. Peyote is, is, is something different. It's a medicine, but it's not like a Western medicine. It's a different approach um, that's much more social and, and, and communal. So I think uh, it's extraordinary for us in our uh, modern Western um, gaze where medicine has become so clinical and so professionalized. It's, you know, it's, it's wonderful for us to remember and still be able to see that there are other kinds of healing. Beautiful. And uh, I remarked that in your book, the Mormonism is pretty much group experience, like it or not. Mm-hmm. And uh, you will tell us why I linked the Mormons here to what we're talking about. The AA group experience, mm-hmm. uh, Bill Wilson experimenting with LSD, the ayahuasca experience for people is pretty much happens in groups all over the world. And then, of course, I don't know if Timothy Leary is the inventor of of group therapy, but he certainly became very notorious about that. So really, Mm. it's very much enhances group awareness, doesn't it? Yes, it does. It's, um, I think it makes... um it bonds people in all kinds of ways um, for healing and um, for uh, and spiritually, but also the point I make at the end of my book is with um, these is, is about Alexander Shulgin, whose his life was transformed by his first masculine trip. But as a chemist, he wanted to know if there were other substances that were similar that he could synthesize in other analogs, and that was the search that led him to discover. MDMA and all these other what we now think of as dance drugs but they also brought people together in an extraordinary way in an extraordinary communal experience which was on the surface of it maybe just hedonistic but I think underneath on a deeper level it had a strong spiritual component and um, certainly for me growing up in uh, in British youth culture you know which was very tribal and very violent we know a lot of the time when I was a teenager you saw that when these these drugs that are like kind of derivatives of mescaline came in suddenly you would go into uh, you know a club and everybody would be all together you know it created an amazing group spirit yeah that's right so I think that can happen even on a Saturday night at a party it doesn't always have to be in a sacred space Well, you see, that's really uh, amazing that uh, you would say this because, of course, uh, the emphasis has uh, become very strongly on healing 
and uh, the psych- psychological and psychiatric use so that these things can be legalized. But I, I, I feel sad that in order to do that, the, the group togetherness is being is being left out, which is what really changed me. Yeah, sixties and seventies. I really feel that too. You know that we, um, you know, as as Westerners, we have extraordinary freedoms with these um, with these plants or these substances. We can take them in a spirit of psych- scientific experiment if we wish. We can take them as a sacrament if we wish, but also if we wish. We can take them to make art and we can take them as a lot of people do with the people who we love most in the most beautiful place in nature. And to me, that's also therapy. And you're right, I think, in the, the way that the uh, medical discourse is progressing. Mm-hmm. Um, people tend to say, oh, that's just recreational. And this, this, th- this therapeutic use done by medical professionals is different. But I think... The medical professionals maybe have a lot to learn from the ways in which uh, other people, you know, the, the, the ways in which these um, substances have, and these plants have developed a culture around them since the 60s. Beautiful, beautiful. So uh, there's a, there's a, um, I, I, my French culture arts makes me say creep critique mm-hmm. but it's not a critique it's a review yeah there's a review of your book that um that says uh, drugs are okay regarding i think your book drugs are okay words are fantastic and so it brought up the question in me now i had this experience with masculine so 40 years ago I've had others but I had to explain that experience to myself Mm -hmm. all through these years since then put it in words and so I'm wondering what you think of how much we've worded these experiences have influenced the way we describe them to ourselves Mm -hmm. And the other way around. Uh, do you I, see what I'm saying? I, I see exactly what you mean. I think it's a really important point. I think we have no choice but to do this. I was very struck when I um, sat and prayed with the Native American church that um, the peyote for them, they don't have to decide if, if it's a sacrament or an experiment. It is what it is. You know, it's always, it has deep cultural roots um, for us, we have to create our own meaning for them somehow, you know, and uh, uh, and and that and, and that involves. Um, so we're not just having the experience; we're also thinking about how we conceive it, and then yes. how we can integrate it into the rest of our lives. And um, one of the pleasures of writing this book was to look at all the different ways that people have tried to explain this, and. Um, uh, some of them resonated with me very particularly. One was the... Um, it's, even though there's a, a long prehistory of these cacti, we have no words, you know? We have art, we have archaeology, but we have nobody to say what the meaning of the experience was. And uh, 
The first time we get that is the first time that Europeans encountered mescaline, which was during the Spanish conquest of Mexico. And of course, most of them were Jesuits and coming from a Europe in the height of the witch craze. So they saw all this as uh, demonic. But they also recorded some of the uh, songs of the Nahua people, the people they called the Aztecs, uh, and where they talk about uh, how they experienced um, these. And they had, uh, they, in, the, in the Nahua uh, hymns and songs, they talk about um, these plants coming from the house of the sun and being to do with the sun and from this world it's not a different world, it's not a heaven, it's just this world, but it's, that it's stepped up to a higher energetic level where everything that to us is physical becomes light. And I think um, this is at the centre of uh, uh, indigenous ideas of what these plants do, that, um, they, um, that they put us into a different relation with nature, they put us into um, a state of awareness where we can see things that are usually invisible, where we can see the hidden causes of things, and uh, where we can maybe communicate with non-human entities or spirits. And it's like... um, And then I was very struck by comparing that with the very first um, Western descriptions of peyote in the 1890s, which is the beginning of the age of electricity. And so many people who took it said this was like electric light, and in a way, this is the same metaphor as, uh, as the Nahua one, that um, it's like uh, uh, the current inside us is being stepped up to a higher level of energy so that we can see the world in a different way. And that's also what Huxley was talking about. So uh, that's the framework that, for me, um, emerged from this to bring together sort of some of the modern scientific ideas and also the kind of deepest indigenous ideas. Beautiful, absolutely future primitive. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's what happened for me as my first masculine journey added luminosity to my life. And, uh, and uh, well, like Aldous Huxley talking about his flannel mm-hmm. trousers that were actually blue jeans. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Well, you you talk about how his wife said you need to yes. make this a little more elegant. Yes, uh, it added text, texture mm. texture to my life, and uh, and also illuminates horror as well. Mm-hmm. And I'd love you to talk about uh, uh, difficult experiences. Yes, when you read all the descriptions of um, uh, all through the early 20th century of people taking mescaline. This is before the psychedelic era. Yeah, um, Jean-Paul Sartre also and uh, Walter Benjamin. Uh, You see, for many people, this is a difficult experience. It's it's very challenging. It's very alienating and and threatening. A lot of these people are taking... um, are being injected with mescaline in a clinic by a doctor who doesn't really understand how the experience feels or how it can go wrong. So there are lots of uh, descriptions of people um, taking it and um, uh, you know having an experience that rapidly turns very 
horrific. Um, Jean-Paul Sartre is a good example, you know, because he sees, I think, he, he doesn't write about it very much directly, but if we read La Nausée, uh, his novel that he wrote after, we could maybe see something. And mm -hmm. he talked about it a bit later in life um, when Aldous Huxley looked at the world and saw it more clearly and closely than ever before. To him, that was a wondrous experience. To Sartre, that was a horrible experience. Every time he looked at something too closely, it was seething and kind of ugly, like a mould or a growth, you know, and... Uh, uh, this is, why, uh, why, in your opinion? Well, I was, um, I, I, th I think that was that was that was addressed very neatly by um, Colin Wilson, who himself took mescaline after he read *The Doors of Perception*, and he was trying to balance these two accounts. And he said, "Well, if you trust the world." And like Huxley does, it's a wonderful experience. If you don't trust the world, like Sartre, then it's a very unnerving and unpleasant experience. You know, and like anything, it, it makes your um, subjectivity more intense. So whatever you're feeling, that feeling is amplified. And if what you're feeling is something that's enchanted and wonderful, it amplifies that. But if what you're feeling is something alienated, it amplifies that too. Yes, it's it's just a telescope or a microscope, and uh, it's an it's an amplifier. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, culture. I mean, I'm mostly interested by culture and context, mm. as Timothy said, and Jose said this morning. He was just telling us what had been happening for thousands of years, set and setting. Mm -hmm. Perhaps you could speak more to us about how you see the culture and the context evolving into the description of the experience and how you think that books like yours, because I do, I do sense that your book is very beautifully written. So you add your own, your, the own, your, your poetry of your experience mm. into the description. How do you feel about the responsibility of passing that on? It's, I feel the responsibility. Um, I think as writers, we all have tools and ways of presenting things. It was a question for me as to whether I should and how I should write about my own experiences because I didn't want this to be a book about myself, you know, because I think the story of Mescaline is a bigger, important story to be told. At the same time, I have, you know, for many, many years, uh, particularly with San Pedro, you know, in, the, in Peru and in other places, I've worked with Mescaline myself for a long time, so in the end, I wrote a little bit at the beginning of the book, a short description of one of my experiences in the first person using I. And then when I came to the end of the book, I'd also prayed with the Native American church and I wanted to write about that. But it seemed to me at that point it would be wrong to use I to say, I am now having this experience and in the background is, are these other people, you know. So I wrote that, but without placing myself in it, I wrote it from the 
point of view of the collective and that uh, that that felt right at that point and so i think there's a lot of um my own experiences are in the book but they're not necessarily there under my name in the first person because this is also another theme that emerged in the book that um as soon as uh, Western experimenters start um, taking peyote and then mescaline. They always write their experience in their first person and they always talk about the visuals. So it's always, you know, 8.20 p.m., 8.5 peyote buttons, <laughs> 9.30 p.m., start to see a violet light around my pen as I'm making notes. You know, this is the language that we're yeah. familiar with. But then when you step across into the world of indigenous culture, Nobody says I. It's and actually, nice. people don't really describe their visions. And there are, particularly with the, with the Wichol and also with some Native American subjects, when they're interviewed, they say, well, if you're paying attention to the visions, to these beautiful pictures that are unfolding on your closed eyelids, then you're missing the main story. You're not paying attention to the ritual. You're not paying attention to the group. You're absenting yourself. So this fixation on the first person and on the visions is very much at the centre of our culture. But I wanted to tell another story alongside that where these things are not so important. Well, yes, you've just uh, discovered something for me that uh, uh, I... uh, I think about which is maybe the difference between madness and greater sanity when you take this is humility. Mm-hmm. I mean, the humility of being just a little part of all of this luminosity, and even when I experience horror, if I go down the road of humility then it's our horror it's not just the crushing horror of my own life yeah I think that's absolutely right I think that's really insightful and I think it's so important you know and that was something that I felt by the end of writing the book that uh, you know even though I've written the book in a way I want to draw myself back from it and, um, you know, present something that goes beyond my own experiences and, uh, for, yeah, for just the reasons that you describe. I see that. <laughs> so let's talk about Merleau-Ponty mm-hmm. and phenomenology. Yes. The mind-body connection. And perhaps you could you could add to that your perspective of our connection to nature yeah as highlighted yes it was a it was a pleasure to be able to introduce some philosophical ideas particularly the ideas of phenomenology because these often stand apart from the psychedelic experience uh, and in fact even in french intellectual culture People don't talk about drugs very much. They're regarded as it's regarded as slightly crude and reductive, you know. And I think within psychedelic culture, people don't read so much in philosophy. But I think um, 
Merleau-Ponty, in his book uh, The Phenomenology of Perception, writes about the psychedelic experience, and he writes mostly, he describes Jean -Paul, his friend Jean-Paul Sartre's experience, um, but he also had some experience himself. And um, uh, so his, his question is, what do we do about this idea of hallucination? You know, what's a, what's a hallucination? And he says that within Western science, it's quite hard to describe because we have this very mechanical idea that, you know, the signal comes into the eye or the ear and through the sensorium and into the brain and is processed. So how would you then describe a sensation which is uh, very, um, you know, directly experienced but also somehow not real. And he says, well, we know it's not real because other people don't see it, and we understand that if you're seeing something, but you know that nobody else is seeing it. Um, so uh, then, then you know it's not in the same category as your normal shared consensual experience. Mm -hmm. So he says this tells us something very important about consciousness. Firstly, that consciousness is embodied. Let's not just talk about the brain, because everything is coming to us through our senses. Uh, so let's acknowledge that, that, and let's also acknowledge that there is a difference between things that we experience on our own and things that we share with other people. So consciousness is social and embodied. And I think this is a great insight. And I think, actually, just in terms of mescaline, which is a very different compound from the other major psychedelics... LSD, psilocybin, DMT are all tryptamines and uh, they're all active at lower doses than mescaline and their action is much more directly on the mind. Mescaline is a phenethylamine. It's, uh, it has more physical effects. You have to take it at higher doses. So I think there's something about mescaline which helps us to this insight that it's an experience that the mind and the body go on together. It's not an experience where the mind leaves the body behind. Yes, um, uh, I've noticed um, uh, much more physical um, uh, effects. I have a note here that says, flower songs, heaven here and now, compared to what's been preached about the afterlife. That's right. That's, that was the Nahua flower songs, the poetry that the, uh, uh, the Spanish recorded, that um, when um, these songs that were brought down from the house of the sun, this idea that you're stepped up to this higher energetic level. Of course, when the Jesuits and the Spanish priests got hold of those, they put them in a book together with bits of the Bible and stories from the lives of the saints, and they tried to say, oh, well, you see... The, uh, you know, your, the, the idea of the Christian heaven, you know, is already here in your culture, but the Christian heaven is another place. It's not here, you know. Mm -hmm. And I think this was the insight, the feeling in the Nahua flower songs that it's here and now, it's right now. And I think um, that's something that runs through um, the literature on mescaline, particularly the cacti, but also, you know, the pure compound itself, that um, it's something that grips you, uh, the, the, the mind and the body together and uh, just transfigures the world around you. It doesn't take you off to another dimension. I often feel with the uh, 
uh, with the tryptamine drugs like DMT, you know, uh-huh. one senses things from another dimension coming towards you, you know, maybe in a good way or maybe assailing you. My feeling with masculine is more often that there's an energy inside me that's radiating out. And, uh, you know, that's, that's maybe the difference between masculine and the other psychedelics. Mm-hmm. So um, speak to us, if you will, about the role and the place of women within the masculine story. That's a very good question. I speak from a position where um, my wife is a kind of long-term psychonaut and in many ways more intrepid and uh, uh, sort of deeper into this than I am and of the second generation in that because her parents were also from there. So uh, in my lived experience... Um, I don't feel a gender divide, you know. I feel in a way almost the opposite, that it's kind of, um, it, it's often harder for men to uh, step unselfconsciously in, into this world. But of course, there are a lot of cultures in the world where psychedelics are a masculine preserve. And there's also universally all the business of child rearing and who's looking after the kids and all these reasons why it might be the men rather than the women who who participate and that's true in indigenous cultures just as it's true at festivals here in in in, in our culture and i think the um i think also the uh the female experience is less often recorded as i said you know from the beginning with the the way in which these experiences are documented in the scientific culture is uh, is, is is very um, is very focused on the effect of the of the drug very scientific and technical I think a lot of the great writing by women in Western science is from anthropologists because when you're writing about the use of these drugs in a culture you have to have much more um, you have to be much more uh, emotionally literate and be looking at the culture around it more and often what I like in um, when you find female descriptions, there are fewer of them. They're not so focused on the experience itself. They're more interested in, okay, who's got this substance? Well, how does the power structure lie here? You know, they look at the dynamics and the relationships more. Uh, so um, I think there's been a, um, there's definitely a male bias in Mm -hmm. sort of the western culture of psychedelics and you can see that with if you just look at the famous figures the Aldous Huxley's and the Timothy Leary's and the Ken Kesey's and so everybody you know it's uh, that that's a position that's still in conferences and uh, very much so yeah I just did um a session at the Breaking Convention uh, conference in London which has really I think led the way in diversity and um there's a lot of people presenting about the use of psychedelics in Africa. There are people like uh, Bia Labache from Chakruna yeah. running like long programs about ayahuasca from an indigenous perspective. And in the history stand, strand in which I was speaking, there was uh, Erica Dick, who's an academic up in, um, in, in Canada who does wonderful work and, did, uh, and she's been working with the archives of Humphrey Osmond, who gave his uh, masculine to Aldous Huxley. And uh, 
She, she's a, an anthropologist. She's a historian of science. Really, uh-huh. she gave a great presentation called "What About Mrs. Psychedelic?" Oh, and wow. she says that uh, you know, if you look at all these experiences which are being recorded by these men, actually, their what their wives are there. Their wives are also taking the psychedelics. It's their wives that they're having the conversation with after to try and to formulate their meaning. But then, when the paper's published, it's just the man's name. So she's doing a wonderful project of trying to recover the experiences of, uh, of, of Mrs. Psychedelic, of the women who don't get recorded. Oh, that's really great, Mrs. Psychedelic. <laughs> so I'd be interested in your, um, in your view about the politics mm-hmm. of um, dope, drugs, medicine, mm-hmm. Uh, sacrament, mm-hmm. the evolution between those words. Yes. <clears throat> well, I've worked for a long time now in um, drug policy reform. There's an organisation called the Transform Drug Policy Foundation in London who have... Uh, and we have, from the beginning, we've been in favour of... Um, legal regulation of all these drugs so there was a long period when people talked about harm reduction and uh, things but you know i think there's a limit to harm reduction because the system we have where drugs prohibited this is a system of harm maximization you know this is a system that takes the most vulnerable people and subjects them to criminal and medical um, penalties and to stigma and um it's also um as a historian, if you look at the the origins of this, it's very much connected to the prohibition of alcohol in the 1920s. And at that time, people were very scared of intoxication generally. And there were concerns, of course, about um, opium and cocaine and marijuana. But mostly these were connected to minority populations, whether black or Mexican or Chinese. But it was the prohibition of alcohol that was really um, you know the big political issue and that was achieved but as soon as it was achieved it became obvious that it was a complete failure and eventually and, and, and that it made things much worse that it created gangsters that it created a huge criminal market and so that prohibition of alcohol was repealed but the drug laws date from that time but then for a long time through the 20th century you know, it was quite a small story, but from the 60s onwards, we then reached the position that alcohol had reached in the 1920s, where the, the demand was so great, it had gone so mainstream, obviously there was going to be a supply, obviously that supply was going to be produced by criminals because these substances were made illegal. Criminalized. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so it seemed to me for a long time that, um, you know, we, we need to find some solution beyond the war on drugs. And uh, so that's been my position. Uh, and um, it's very interesting to see how that plays out with uh, mescaline and peyote, because from peyote, as you say, was prohibited by the Spanish. In fact, that's the first drug prohibited by Europeans. Okay. As soon as it appears in the reservations of the, you know... Um, of the of, of the of the American plains in the 
uh, late 19th century, the missionaries and the federal authorities tried to stamp it out and to ban it. And, you know, to me, that story of the survival of the Native American church is incredibly powerful and moving. And um, so I think um, that's, that's my broad feeling about the law, is that um, these substances need to be regulated. And I don't think that's so unusual in our society because I think we have to acknowledge that um, drugs can be risky and can be dangerous, sure. but that we, what we normally do with dangerous activities is we regulate them, you know, like with gambling, for example, or if you think about uh, mountain climbing, you know, where you have, yes, you can do it, but you have to join a club and you have to wear a helmet and your safety, you know, it's, you know that's how we normally do things. But I think because drugs pose almost like an existential threat to some elements in our culture. People are very worried that this is going to change well, the, our culture. They destabilise the, the, the power structure. <laughs> yes, exactly. So I think, what, uh, I, I think what we need to do is to say, look, let's just treat this as, you know, an activity like any other. Let's minimise, you know, we, we, we acknowledge that they can cause harm, but let's look at how we can minimise the harms that they cause. And we already have so many regulatory systems in our culture you can have a licensed premises or a licensed retailer or a doctor's prescription or you know within within all that system with all these different um, uh, substances that we have now we can find a regulatory solution for each one which minimizes the harm and if it's too loose we look at the evidence and we tighten it. If it's too tight and there's still a black market, we look at the evidence and we mm-hmm. loosen it. We should mm-hmm. just, this should just be, we should just treat drugs the way that we treat sensibly and rationally treat anything else in our society. But, Mike, I think there is also something else that I think you point in your book about that there is an unconscious uh, religious or spiritual mm-hmm. association of these medi- these special substances with evil yes, that tr- trace back to the to the time of the meeting of these cultures, no, the, the Western culture and the indigenous culture. Yep, I can talk about that. It's from the very first contact that uh, European um, society had with mescaline in the form of the peyote cactus in Mexico, it was prohibited. And I think in being prohibited, that made it, it drew a line. It said that if you take peyote or these drugs generally, then you're savage. And to cross the boundary to become civilized and Christian, you have to give these things up. And um, then when you have the same debate with the uh, Native American tribes in the 19th century, more of the time now, we have by that time you have a government and doctors who explain this more in the language of public health, or that these substances are very bad for you and they produce, they kind of make, produce kind of degenerations and negative effects and people have to stop them in order to become healthy citizens. So now our lang- our, this conversation almost entirely happens in the language of medicine and science and whether mm-hmm. these things are good for you or bad for you. But I think underlying this is something much closer to that original message that uh, people who take drugs are, uh, 
not a, 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 a still on the savage side and that they need to be abandoned before people can be truly civilized. But it seems to me that that, um, you know, has now become a minority view, you know, and I hope, maybe I'm optimistic, but I hope that our majority culture actually has moved on from that and we're now just looking for ways in which we can all live in harmony. Mm-hmm. So... I'd be very interested in knowing how you feel that the writing of this book has changed you and how it has created the next project, the evolution Mm -hmm. that you lived through this has changed you. It's... um, I find that, as with psychedelics generally, it's enriched my life enormously you know that it's uh, it's a long time now that um you know they've been allies of mine and of my loved ones and that you know they've been very instrumental in building up a wonderful world so i see it more as a a process like that that's continuing i think in this book particularly i thought more than i had done before about um you know our Western and modern attitudes to psychedelics and realizing that this is not the only way in which they can be understood. And um, I tried to sort of formalize this at the end. I noticed that um, mescaline as a chemical was first isolated in the laboratory a hundred years ago in mm-hmm. 1919. And during that time, then in Western culture, we've tried to utilize it and instrumentalize it in so many ways. Is it good for this? Is it good for that? You know, so many experiments, fascinating, um, you know, but uh, very restless. And over the last hundred years, masculine has had this amazing rise and fall, you know, to being, you know, with Aldous Huxley, this becoming this famous substance and now almost disappeared. Yeah. And then looking also at the Native American church, which was founded about 100 years ago in 1918. And during that 100 years of um, very intense legal persecution, how strong it's become, how it's shaped and preserved culture. Yeah, the Native American church with, yeah, at least a quarter of a million members now. But also it's very much the same as it ever was. And I think that's because... um, Rather than trying to instrumentalize um, the psychedelics and use them for this purpose or for that purpose, or scientific or medical or spiritual, peyote is taken to be, a, it's given personhood, you know, in that culture. It's seen as a person with many facets. You don't try and shape it or change it or take, minimize this bit or you know, build up that bit. You just build your culture around it, you know, and. Um, that's um, that's really why you know it's it, it's lasted. So I think what I've learned from this book is um, with psychedelics myself, not to try and use them for a particular purpose. To say I'm going to use them to achieve this, or you know these are my this is my agenda for personal growth. Or it's, heal my childhood. Exactly. It's much more just to take them on their own terms. To try not to impose my views or my values on them and um, I've just found that they've enriched and rewarded me in so many ways beautiful yes awe 
A-W-E. So I think this is a good place to stop. Well, it's been such a pleasure, Joanna. Thank you so much. Yeah, great, great pleasure for me too. Thank you.